morning. I'm excited to be in God's Word with you all this morning. Uh, we're going to re-enter into our Kingdom of God series, but when Pastor Jeremiah had originally asked me to uh, give the talk on this Sunday, I didn't realize it was his 40th birthday. And the inconvenience of not being at your church to be reminded that you're 40 from 50 different people is a real inconvenience. So, because we're sort of speaking on the same passage in a way uh, he's speaking on next week, he said he was going to listen to the recording this morning. And I thought, what a great way for him to hear a happy birthday from his congregation than for me to take the mic, point it out, and all of you to sing nice and loud for me, happy birthday to Jeremiah, who's 40 today, for the recording. So, happy birthday to you. So as we re-enter our time into the Kingdom of God series, we're going to have a message entitled the King, or Kingdom Power for us. Last week, if you were with us, you heard some incredible stories from Joshua and Brad about what God's saving power looks like for our souls. And then two weeks ago, you may remember that Jeremiah talked about the sobering passage of Matthew 7, where it says, Not all who call on the Lord will be saved. And this week we re-engage, we jump back into the text, and what a better way to do that than to cover chapter 8 and 9 in only a 35-minute presentation. <laughs> but rather than flooding you with information, I'm going to outline these chapters for us, and then highlight a specific angle for us to look at them with, and then we're going to see God's kingdom power through that. So, covering chapters 8 and 9... These are all stories with this common theme. Physical healing. Casting out demons. Saving faith. God's miraculous power. Some of the most famous stories come out of Matthew 8 and 9, where Jesus heals the bleeding woman. Or Jesus calms the storm when he's sleeping on the boat. Uh, Jesus casting the demons into pigs is featured here. He raises a little girl from the dead. And all of these stories of Jesus' kingdom power come to this climactic point in chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And this is like the summit of the text for us. Uh, Jesus' kingdom power conquers the mountains of sickness and death, demonic possession, natural disasters, and then we get to 35 through 38 in chapter 9. We'll read it together, but I hope at the end of the morning, when we reread this, we will see a new sweetness of this text. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. 
So Jesus has the power to save. We saw this last week with Joshua and Brad's story. Jesus also has the power to heal. We've heard that many times in this congregation where people go in with cancer or other illnesses and the Lord heals them from it. And as I thought about Brown Corners this week, I think our church does have a high view of God's ability to heal us and to save our souls. Uh, we've even heard Brad's testimony showing God has the power to control storms as well. But there's one thing that Jesus also talked about in this passage, and that we're going to spend this morning looking at together. In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we see Jesus' power to cast out demons. We're going to consider that, and then we'll end on those verses that we just read together this morning. But before we begin, I think it's important for us to recognize the spiritual realm and its complications to it, because it manifests itself in different ways. For some parts of the globe, witch doctors and supernatural strength and severe possession can be seen pretty frequently. But for other areas, demonic possession doesn't look the same. Let's consider what we can know about evil, demons, and the devil. And so, I've made a list for us this morning. First, what do we know about the forces of evil? And to be honest with you, I would say, not much. They're talked about often in the Bible. Nearly every culture and religion has some sort of explanation of the evil one. But that's the problem. Everyone has an idea of it. But if we're going to try and pin it down, it gets really complex after that. What else can we know? Well, first we know the forces of evil were actually not always evil. In fact, they were majestic, angelic. They were heavenly. Good and evil have not always existed together. Goodness is eternal. Evil had a starting point, and it has an expiration date. There's a line from a song by a popular artist called NF that says, People change. Even Satan used to be an angel. What else do we know? Well, we know their intentions because we see Satan's intentions in Isaiah chapter 14. And we'll read through these intentions together. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the grounds, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. The intentions of Satan and demons are rising above God, being greater than the creator of the universe. And this is important to state, because all other wickedness flows out of that. And if we're not careful, we can let our modern horror movies dictate too much about what we believe about the forces of evil. And this is coming from a guy who's never seen a horror movie. But the commercials alone have been enough to affect my view of how Satan actually works. We have to start with the reality that everything that is evil starts out with the intentions of being greater than God, of wanting more control than God has. And the fruit of that is just the byproduct of that basic desire. How about what else? Well, there's three other things that I think are important for us to consider. The next is that the Bible depicts Satan as three different kinds of animals. 
There's a lion, there's a wolf, and there's a snake. What's significant about these three? Well, they're all predators. And for each of these, by the time you're seeing them, it's often too late. You see, even the Bible says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and destroy. But here's the thing with lions and wolves and snakes. They, they don't run around the woods like a police car siren making noises everywhere they go. They're silent. They sneak up on you. They spy on you. And the only time that they make a noise is when they want you to hear them. Secondly, the first demon that Jesus casts out in the New Testament is actually done in a church. And I think that speaks enough on its own. Jesus doesn't need to go to the brothel to cast out a demon. He doesn't need to go to the corrupt government. He can do it right into the church. And if we see that in Jesus' day, there were demons present for worship and manipulating people, then we'd be naive to not think that even today, demons are still actively present fighting against our church services. And then finally, the Bible says that Satan is a deceiver. It doesn't depict him as the boogeyman that our movies have made him out to be. What we see in the Garden of Eden are lies. What we see happen to Job and all of his suffering are lies. What we see Satan whispering to Jesus in his 40 days in the desert are lies. In John 8, 44, we see Jesus rebuking Pharisees in this way. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So as far as scripture is concerned, Satan's primary means of attacking you are through lies. And that's not to say that he won't take the form of goblins or dark figures in the night to intimidate you. He can do that. But far more often he's lying than he is standing up to be seen. And this was a long list. And each of these could have its own sermon. But if we're going to talk about kingdom power this morning... This means that I think we need to focus on casting out evil together. To cast out evil, to cast out lies, to cast out demons. Now before we carry on, I want to address maybe some suspicions you might be having about this whole Satan and lying premise. Because like I said before, if we were to go to other areas of the globe, we'd see spiritual bondage looks differently. You can go to other countries and see supernatural strength demonic influences and impulses. And that too is 100% able to be cast out by the Holy Spirit. But Satan just hasn't made his stand for us in this society in that way. Not that it never happens, because it does, but he's taken an approach of silence for us in the West. That way anyone who talks about him just sounds like a superstitious fanatic instead of a logical, reasonable person. And through this silence, Satan has flooded our homes, our marriages, our kids, our churches, schools, and government 
with lies. Lies upon lies upon lies. And if you observe the world through this lens that every lie has its own little demonic entity to it, none of us would ever leave our homes out of fear. But in an oversimplified way, the Bible actually implies that it's that. To carry on, lies are the language of evil. And so for us, when we're lying to God, it's like we're speaking an entirely different language. And how do we know this? Well, let's consider what happens when you call someone out who's been living in a lie for a long time. Do they respond in a warm, affectionate way of saying, Thanks, brother, you caught me in this lie that I've been giving to people for over a decade. I am so glad that you've finally taken the time to address this lie that I've been giving to people. No. That's, that's not how people react when you catch them in a lie. In fact, what happens? They get mean. They'll get defensive of themselves. They'll go on the offensive against you. And this polite, kind person that you were just talking to, all of a sudden changes. There's a different tone to their voice. There's anger. There's bitterness. There's hostility. You'll hear things like, how dare you say that to me? I'm a highly respected person. How could you accuse me of this? Maybe you'll hear, I've been good to you for all of these years. How could you say such a thing to me? Or possibly, who are you to say that to me? Do you know how much pressure that I'm under? It's almost as if when you catch that person in a lie, their very personality contorts and this harsh one comes out. Consider with me perhaps that maybe this is because this lie has sunk its roots so deep into them that when you threaten it, they feel like their very life source is being threatened by you shining light on this lie. Now don't let your minds race too far ahead of me on this. I'm not only speaking of demonic possession with lies. I'm also talking about oppression of lies. If you were to meet someone in a spiritual set-free ministry, they'll tell you possessed people often can't even tell the truth anymore. The demon is so far in, it's their master that they're literally spewing lies over everything, over what day it is, over what they had for breakfast. However, Jesus and Scripture clearly show that people with the Holy Spirit can also be oppressed by demonic lies. In fact, they show that people can wander and be deceived. Maybe they have a one-night stand on Jesus with a lie, or maybe it's for a long time. But Christians are not immune to the spiritual oppression of lies. Even the great Charles Spurgeon wrestled deeply with demonic lies. And Spurgeon's ministry could make Billy Graham's look like it was a part of the minors. Let's take a look over history at some of the lies that Christians have bought from the past. And I want to warn you that this isn't going to feel like Vicks Vapor Rub to put on. This is going to feel like peroxide. Because it's ugly, ugly lies. Starting in the 11th century, Christians came to believe that conversion could be compelled with death threats. So the Crusades began. So they embraced this lie. Thus this lie has smeared the Christian faith ever since. In the 15th century, Christians still hadn't figured out to overcome this problem of lust and adultery. On the one hand, they would read their Bibles and it would say, don't do it. On the other hand, 
they still wanted to do it. And so, all of a sudden, this lie started circulating and people started buying into it. It was, what about prostitution? I mean, there's nothing romantic about it. It's a simple transaction just to meet my needs. And if I don't do this, I could commit adultery on my wife, and I don't want that to happen. So they embraced this lie. Thus, this lie has smeared the Christian faith ever since. Time to fast forward a little closer to home, 18th century. Now, the Bible doesn't condone stealing people or putting them into involuntary slavery. Slavery in the Bible was a voluntary thing with terms and conditions for a time restraint, for Sabbaths, and for dignity and respect. But a lie started circulating among Christians. And that's that Africans aren't fully human. In fact, they're just three-fifths human. And if they're not fully human, then we don't need to treat them like we need to treat our other workers. So they embrace this lie. And thus, this lie has smeared the Christian faith ever since. The last lie to consider the 20th century. Christians in Germany and in America bought into this lie that these people are a threat to our establishment. For the Germans, it resulted in the Holocaust. For Americans, it resulted in lynching and throwing bombs in churches of Africans. So they embraced this lie, and this lie smeared the Christian faith ever since. Now, in all these eras of lies, I want to acknowledge not everyone practicing this lie identified as a Christian. Hitler didn't identify as a Christian. Many of the Klan members did not identify as a Christian. But the thing is, is some of them did. And these lies that are egregious, wicked, and evil, and in total opposition to Christ, took seed in the hearts of those identified with Christ. And if we can walk throughout history and see lies that Christians have bought into in the past, we'd be utter fools not to acknowledge that we are buying into lies today as well. Sure, we can point out the lies that the Christians over there are buying into. Like the lie that a baby's just a parasite until it's born, or some magical moment in the womb. Or the lies that the Christians over there believe that sin and the law don't matter at all. But what about in here, in this room? What about in Clare County? What lies have we bought into? Now, the demonic activity of lies serves two purposes. The first we looked at, and that lies serve to create division and hostility and hate and violence against other people. But that's not the only purpose lies can serve, because they can also serve to create hate and violence against yourself, spiritually, emotionally, or physically. A lie could whisper into your ear, God would never love those people over there. He'll never forgive them. Or a lie could whisper in your ear, God will never love you. God will never forgive you. But here's our problem. We're all guilty of sharing and believing lies. Sharing lies is so linked to demonic activity that the Greek word in the New Testament for slanderer is the exact same word as the Greek word for Satan. And until we, in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the truth of the gospel, cast out lies, 
we're going to be walking with a limp the rest of our lives. We're going to operate like God doesn't have our best intentions in mind, and we need to protect ourselves for when eventually he lets us down. Now, I would like to be vulnerable with you all this morning, because this message is heavy on me too. Because your speaker has a limp of his own. Uh, I want to share with you a freedom from a lie that I found two years ago that I didn't realize I'd been carrying for 20 years. In fact, uh, this surfacing of this lie came out of a men's group that I was in. And we were just sharing stories, and I was trying to like, make some comedic relief to like, help people share more about uh, significant moments of their childhood. And so I thought of this story that originally I just thought was embarrassing, but by the end of the men's group, I just ended up weeping from. So for some context as a child, I was really shy and didn't have many friends. I had a father who was bigger than life, and while I always looked up to his bravery and courage, it was hard for me to get out from behind his shadow. Uh, having not many friends, there was one friend that I had, though, that stood out above all the other ones, and he was the best. He was my absolute best friend. And one day as a child, um, I got invited to a kid's birthday party from the community. I, I didn't really know him that well, but I, I didn't really get invited to birthday parties before, so I thought, oh, finally. I'm finally making it into a friend group. I'm finally starting to know some people. So I go to the party, and to be honest, I don't remember much of anything from that party. Just this one, this one thing that happened there. Uh, we were at this party, and we were all standing around outside of a chicken coop, and we were watching the chickens. <clears throat> when all of a sudden, all of the other kids grabbed me, put my arms behind my back, and threw me into this chicken coop, and locked the door behind me. So I was, I think I was six or five somewhere at that point. Um, but I was panicking. The chickens were also panicking. But the only thing that I remember from this party is standing in this pen in this wall of kids pointing and laughing at me and me being locked inside. And this best friend, the only true friend I thought I had, was right in the middle of the group pointing and laughing with them. So I, don't, I, I remember the mom came and got me out, but then my parents came to pick me up after the party. I don't remember if I stayed for the whole thing or if they had to come early for me. But the only other memory I have is sitting into the car and thinking, that will never happen to me again. And for the next 20 years, I lived my life under that mindset of I can never be in that position again. Cast out, mocked, laughed at, isolated. And so what did that practically look like for me? Well, I would socially throw people into the chicken coop so I would never have to be. The sports teams I would be on, if someone was doing better than me, I would cheap shot them so that I would still be able to get the starting spot. Socially, if I started to lose one friend, I would sacrifice a lesser friend by telling a vulnerable thing about them so everyone else would laugh at them and then I would stay in the inner circle. And this lie that I had to fight to stay out of this coop, or it's just going to happen to me, had followed me nearly all my life at that point. 
until one day a brother named Dave spoke into my life about that and cast it out. But here's the thing. I was a born-again Christian. I was baptized. I, I was a missionary for Pete's sake. But that lie had oppressed me for two decades. And a crater was left behind. But here's the good news. What craters are left behind by a lie, God fills it with his grace, and that crater becomes a beautiful lake, reflecting his goodness and his mercy. And it was by my brother's help that was a desert wasteland, and my story has now become a place of joy and freedom and life. See, here's the thing about lies. We need someone else in the process to remove them. Because lies are our blind spots. Even when we know we're lying, we're lying when we stand in front of someone because we believe the lie of, if I don't lie to this person right now, I will not be worthy of love. And so I have to lie. We can't cast out the own lie, our own lies. We need a truth teller. We need someone to come who knows what the truth is and can apply it to us correctly. And friends, there's only been one person in the history of the world who's come and claims to be and is the truth, the way, and the life. See, the fundamental lie that each of us have believed is that God doesn't have my best interests in mind. I can do better. It's the lie that caused Eve to sink her teeth into the fruit. It's the lie that caused the disciples to flee the night of Jesus' crucifixion. But here's how Jesus responds. God's so dedicated to our best interests that he came to suffer and die on a cross for you and for me. The creator of the universe, who's at his very fingertips, could create galaxies of stars, stood silently in front of the Roman and Jewish uh, leaders. And when he spoke, it was in love and truth. As he was whipped and beaten, his love for you and I compelled him forward. As they slung a cross over his shoulder and he had to carry it through town, his love for you and I compelled him forward. As those nails would pierce his hands and pierce his feet, his love for you and I would compel him forward. And as the weight of sin rest upon his shoulders, as the sky went dark and he experienced the wrath of God, his love for you and I compelled him forward. And three days later, when the stone was rolled away, his love for you and I compelled him forward. See, Jesus, while we lie at the most egregious and menial things to avoid not being loved, Jesus marched into lovelessness for us. He marched into pain and separation for us. While we throw people into the chicken coops of life, he went into the ultimate one for us. He was mocked, pointed at, spit on, for the good of those who love him. And that is Jesus. That is the only power that can cast out demons and lies and evil spirits inside of us. The only power that can stop storms. The only power that can heal our sicknesses. And the only power that can save our souls. And that very same power that was alive in Jesus through the Holy Spirit is now alive in us to equip us to do the same. 
that we can be a kingdom of citizens who cast out demons and lies in our communities, both literally and figuratively. This is Jesus' work for us, and he invites us to be a part of it, which brings us back to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We've seen evil. We can look back over history together and see evil. We can go home after church and turn on the news and see evil. But this passage speaks directly to that reality. Because while Jesus did literally walk through the towns and villages in his time on earth, he has also walked through in the power of the Holy Spirit all towns and all villages on earth. He's seen to it that the good news of the kingdom is preached throughout the world. And he has given the power of healing over every sort of disease and illness. From Genesis 3 in the fall to 2020, in the years that follow, Jesus has looked over the crowds, he's looked over the masses, he's looked over the world, and he's had compassion on them. Because they wandered about like sheep without a shepherd, harassed. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And friends, that's us. He's equipped us with the power of the Holy Spirit to go and do what he's done. To cast out sicknesses, to cast out demons, to cast out lies, to preach the good news. To go into all the ends of the earth declaring <coughs> Jesus is Lord. So, you know the lies your loved ones are tangled in. You know the lies that your spouse is bought into. You know the lies that are being shared in Christ's name. And so the question is, will you respond? Will you cast out the lies that your, friends are that your friend is believing that's leading him or her into an affair? Will you cast out the lies from a co-worker that says the problem with the world are the people from that town or that skin color? Or that country? Will you tell your family member that their love of money and their career is costing them their family and their soul? Will you tell your friend who's so downcast that they don't even feel like living anymore that God loves them and has a plan for their life? And will you tell yourself the truth that the loved ones have been telling you for a long time? Maybe your desire for security is threatening your marriage and your family, and you're working too much. Maybe your ego is causing you to seek attention from someone that isn't your spouse. My only heed to you is that Jesus often rebuked through tears. And before you go out guns blazing about these things, I ask you to cast out lies with the posture of someone going to a family member on their deathbed, praying for their healing, praying for their recovery, and with tears streaming down your face, asking the Lord to save them from this situation. 
I'm going to invite up uh, my brother Tom for this part of this morning. Uh, when I was working on this talk late in the week, I thought of the hymn softly and tenderly. And uh, I don't think I have the molasses voice that Tom has to sing that for you this morning. Um, but Tom's just going to sing a chorus and verse for us. That as we go out to cast out these lies that are wrapped around our spouses and our children and our community, I want us to do so with this hymn in mind. Uh, lyrics are behind you, Tom, not on the back wall. If you know the song, you can sing along with them, but Tom's just going to sing this a cappella for us as we reflect. You can sing along if you want. <laughs> Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's watching and waiting, waiting for you and for me. Come home, come that this crater left in their heart from years of lying to themselves can be filled with God's grace to become a beautiful lake, like a Lake Michigan sunset. Let's pray together. Father, you are the holder of truth. You are truth. And we are so desperately in need of truth that we don't even know what to do with ourselves. We're so quick to believe lies, lies about you, lies about other people, lies about our self-worth. God, would you, in your grace and mercy, cast those out of this room now, that we would see that we are children of the King, that we would see those other people that we can't stand is created in the image of God, that we would see the love on Calvary was given for us that we might become adopted sons and daughters of God. Lord, would the lies come undone, would lakes come into hearts, and would wastelands be as vibrant as the Garden of Eden this morning? 